0: bali serbia tokyo and bulgaria this week we're living the life of the digital nomad traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes tasty beverages and interesting experiences this is the destination eat drink podcast on the radio misfits podcast network i'm Brent peterson host of destination eat drink the travel podcast for foodies the hottest job trend these days seems to be the digital nomad. Traveling the world, working wherever you can stop long enough to find an internet connection, this lifestyle seems incredibly romantic. But what's it really like being a digital nomad? This week, I talked to an expert, Kristen Wilson. She's been living the location independent lifestyle for well over a decade, and she'll tell us about being a digital nomad helping others learn about becoming a digital nomad, and some of her favorite foodie places she's stopped at along the way. But first, don't forget to subscribe to the Destination Eat Drink podcast. Just go to your favorite podcast delivery system, whether it be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, or at radiomisfits.com. Hit that subscribe button and make me smile. Destination Eat Drink. With me today is Kristen Wilson. She is a digital nomad. That means she travels all over the world with her business. She's an entrepreneur, but she also teaches other folks how to become a digital nomad. That means that she's been all over the world. And so she's the perfect guest to have on Destination Eat Drink. Kristen, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Brent.
0: Before we get started, Kristen, why don't we define our terms? What exactly is a digital nomad?
1: So a digital nomad is basically an umbrella term to really describe a person who is part of the remote work revolution, as I call it, or the remote work movement. It's somebody who can be an employee or self-employed or a freelancer or an entrepreneur, but they are able to accomplish their job role and duties just with the internet connection. So with Wi-Fi and a computer or a cell phone or something like that. And they are traditionally associated with travel because once you have what's called location independence where you don't have to go to an office every day for a nine to five job, then it's like, why wouldn't you travel <laughs> at least sometimes? And so this term was invented in 1997 um by two engineers, I believe, or software engineers who wrote a book called Digital Nomad. And they basically had the foresight because of their role in technology, they foresaw what would happen once technology shrunk and became more affordable, more accessible to people, that we would return to our nomadic roots. So we would stop only living in cities and settlements, and we would start wandering around the globe again. And that's what we are doing now
0: so this term came about 22 years ago but really digital nomad has exploded in the last few years and it's really interesting because you talk about migrating away from the cities but everyone today talks about how cities are the places where people are going to be congregating in where people are going to be moving to they have been moving to and they will continue to move to but you're saying this is going to spread out send its tentacles all over the world because of digital connectivity
1: Yes, I think it's actually quite strange that um, so many of the economic predictions haven't taken this into account. So I definitely think that people have been moving to cities because that's where jobs are. So it's kind of went from factories and cities to mass transportation where everybody went out into the suburbs, and now people are coming back into the cities because Of things like Uber and they, you know, they don't need cars and they don't want to be really far away. But I think what we're going to start seeing is definitely a different global migration pattern. People will still be passing through cities, but they'll also, and of course, they'll still be living in cities as well. But People can work like many digital nomads choose to work from rural areas like in the mountains or on beaches or on islands or things like that. So people are going to have a lot more freedom um, that they can live in a city, they can live in the countryside, they can live in towns, and there won't be a very direct pull to commute to a place of work. So people are just basically going to have more options on where they want to live. And I'm definitely for smart cities. Um, but I think that a lot of these macroeconomic um, expectations are based a lot on history and the past and not necessarily. Um, some of these things that will be happening now in the present and the future, because it's still such a new concept.
0: You know, I think a lot of people when they when if they're familiar with the term digital nomad, if they're familiar with the concept, the fantasy is you've got your laptop and you've got your toes in the sand, and maybe you've got a fruity drink uh, sitting next to you, and you're (laughs) saying, this is possible, but you can really be anywhere. You could be on a farm in Nebraska, or you could be in the mountains in the Julianne Alps. You can literally be anywhere as long as you have a digital connection.
1: Exactly. I'm actually writing a blog on how I think that remote work can help rural communities in the U.S., in the Midwest, for example, um, places that have been economically decimated by the closure of factories and by the exporting of jobs to developing countries. So I am being a digital nomad means that you have the opportunity to live wherever you want, whenever you want, and you have the opportunity to travel. Um, However, you can also choose to stay home, spend more time with your family, spend more time with your kids, and just live a a traditional lifestyle, but without having to spend one day a week sitting in traffic.
0: (laughs) Right. So, Kristen, what are some of the jobs that people are doing? If someone's thinking, oh, I could be a digital nomad, but what do people actually do as digital nomads?
1: So there's a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions about what being a digital nomad is and what it means and what you have to do to be a digital nomad. And it's mostly that they are these kind of unemployed bootstrapping backpacker tech men that are roaming around the world, <laughs> sitting on beaches with like Mai Tais and whatever. So um, it's actually 40% of digital nomads today are over the age of 36. They come from all different backgrounds. They're pretty equally split between men and women, um, and they involve tech and non-tech related jobs. So uh, I kind of have it categorized by remote employee, where you do your same job that you would do at a company, but the only difference is you do it from home instead of from the central head office. Um, Then there's also freelancers. So a lot of freelancers have been working from home for a long time anyway or maybe they do contract work on location so they're still working from home um then you have entrepreneurs and business owners that they might have a brick and mortar business but they can change to a different model and do something online um then you also even have seasonal employees so you can technically be a digital nomad let's say if you are a nutritionist, you can work in a hospital, you can counsel people one-on-one, or you can do it online. You can do Skype calls, um, you can create a program about nutrition, and then sell that on the internet. So you can take a skill set that you already have, and you can just offer it online instead of offering it in person. And let's say you are a bartender for example you have to go to work and work behind a bar to make a living but you could also take your bartending skills and write a book or create a social media presence about being a bartender Um, you can do uh, courses on how to mix your own drinks like you can just kind of take extract a skill that you already have and then build or bridge that tool set to make it so I don't have any programming background. I don't have any technical software, graphic design experience, anything like that. I used to work in real estate and Costa Rica. And what I did was I took my skill set of being a realtor and working in Costa Rica and understanding what it's like to live and work in a foreign country. And I turned that into a relocation service that I did in person for about a year and a half before I realized that I could just outsource the tasks that I did in person and I could manage everything from a project management system online. And then that's what I did. So what I do now is I help teach people how they can transition from a traditional nine to five lifestyle to one that is more free and location independent and remote. And there's a lot of paths to get there. And I say that there's just as many Paths to get there, as there are people in the world because you can take it and make it your own thing. I think it's important
0: that you destroy that stereotype, that myth of it being a, a male-centric, coding-centric lifestyle. You said any skill that you have, you can probably create a digital nomad lifestyle out of that. Um, now, how many how many countries have you lived in so far? Because the the number to me is is quite amazing.
1: So I've actually been living and working abroad in some capacity since 2002, 2003. So in total, it's been about 15 years, but I've been a digital nomad, like nomadic traveling around the world on and off for the past seven or eight years. And I've been to about 60 countries now. So the first country I ever went to was Italy when I was 17, Yay. which, yes, uh, I think it was the best place to go. I went to Rome and Northern Italy, and it completely set the stage for my future of travel. And then I studied abroad twice in Costa Rica and Australia. And then I was pretty much hooked on the concept of long-term travel and being an expat, somebody who lives and works outside of their home country. So... Yeah, here we are today. I think i have at 60-something countries, but I'm not really sure.
0: Kristen, you talk about the long-term travel. And I think this is an important concept to explore a little bit because we're not talking about going on vacation. And it's a completely different mindset, I think, going on vacation and actually deciding, hey, I'm going to live and work here. What are some of the different factors that you have between of A, a vacation, and B, living in a place.
1: Right. You make a really good distinction there because people who are traveling long-term don't really fit into those traditional categories as being a local or being a tourist. So if you are a tourist, you're basically paying a premium on your travel because you're consuming it in very small amounts. (laughs) So... Um, Instead of paying long-term rent on a one-year contract basis, you're paying hotel rates per night or Airbnb rates per night or per week. Um, And if you are a local, you just own your house or you pay long-term rent. But when you're a digital nomad or an expat um, living outside of your home country, you kind of fall somewhere in the middle. So there's been this Um, also misconception that traveling is really expensive and that's because most people can only do it during their holiday or during their vacation when everybody else is typically um, having time off, you know, during holidays, during the summertime, when the kids are out of school. And so, yeah, the prices go up because it's a question of supply and demand. But when you don't have all of the monthly expenses that you have in a traditional lifestyle, like your rent and your utilities and your car insurance and your health insurance and gas and all these things, you can use that budget for long-term travel. So you might not be paying the same cost of living as a local person does in Italy, but you can go and live in Italy for three months for a drastically reduced cost compared to if you went there on a one-week vacation.
0: Well, the name of the podcast is Destination Eat Drink. So let's talk food and drink. You've been to 60 countries, plus or minus. What are some of your favorite food cities and places to eat?
1: So I am part Italian. Like My heritage is Italian, Hungarian, Romanian, Irish, and Scottish. But I definitely feel like um, I really like to go back to my Italian roots. And I've been to Italy twice, um, once when I was 17, and then once for my 35th birthday. And so I have to say that probably Rome and Florence are two of my favorite cities in the world for like Italian food. Um, But I am a bit of a foodie. And I actually posted I have a Facebook community called long term digital nomad success. And I posted the other day on what is like a food that you guys miss from your travels and so we were all having this discussion and one of my other like it's kind of a vice but I really love living in Europe and I really love the bakeries in Europe so um, some of the places that I associate that with is like Vienna Austria for example or Paris or really anywhere in France because I love croissants and pastries and like apple pie, apple strudel, stuff like that. And also Budapest. Like I love a good apple strudel with ice cream or cream or whatever. Um, but then I also am quite healthy. So I try to live a really healthy lifestyle and not always overindulge in like the kind of like chocolate croissants and those sorts of things. Um, but I really enjoy places that have access to organic, Local markets and local foods. So, in that sense, one of my favorite places is Bulgaria because they have, they're not in the Schengen area yet. So, they have all of their old traditional seeds and fruits and vegetables, and they have cherries and apples like growing on the trees on the side of the road. It's amazing. And um, they have some of the oldest vineyards on the planet. So, they have a lot of like, really unique types of produce. And then on the more developed end of the spectrum, I really love Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada, because it has a really good blend of super healthy, but expensive organic grocery stores, outdoor markets and then they also have a really big Asian influence. So, of course, I love Tokyo, Japan for food, but I also love Vancouver because you can get almost any type of Asian food within a two or three block radius. So they have amazing sushi. They have fresh salmon um, from, of course, from British Columbia. And they have Japanese, Chinese, Korean barbecue, like um, Vietnamese food. They really have everything. So I would say those are some of my favorite like top three destinations for food.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about Bulgaria. But before we do that, you mentioned the Shurgen Zone. And we should probably explain to folks what that is, because I think a lot of Americans aren't familiar with the Shurgin Zone.
1: Right. So it's the Schengen zone, Schengen zone, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So that is totally normal. I actually didn't know what the Schengen zone was either until 2013 when I planned an extended trip to Europe. And basically what it is, is a um, borderless trade zone. Um, So that's why you can go to Europe with your passport and you can go to different countries without going through customs and immigration. However it has enhanced the trade of goods and people. But um, that means that you can only, if you're traveling on a US passport, for example, you can only stay in the Schengen zone countries for up to 90 days at a time. So instead of having 90 days to travel to Italy and 90 days to go to France and 90 days to go to Spain, you have 90 days to visit all of those countries together within a 180 day period. So the Schengen zone tends to have a lot of uniform regulations when it comes to food um, and their health agencies and inspections, Um, but it also affects our ability to travel as foreigners in that area. So in Europe, you have countries that are on the European continent, but they are not in the EU and they are not in the Schengen. And then you have another category of countries that are in the EU, but not in the Schengen, and then you have another category of countries that are in the Schengen, but not in the EU. So that would be Iceland, for example, is a Schengen country, but it's not in the EU, and Bulgaria is in the EU, but not in the Schengen, and then um, Cyprus as well is in the EU, but not in the Schengen, and then you have countries that are like Not yeah, It it gets a little complicated, but basically every country, I think there's about 27 Schengen member states. And so you just have to check before traveling to Europe if you're going to be staying for a long time, um, if where you're going counts as Schengen or not. And if you want, I can give you a link to a video that explains this and you can put it in your show notes. I think
0: it's important because people who want to travel long term need to know hey, I can only spend 90 uh, out of 180 days here. I'm going to have to get my foot out of the Schengen and out of the EU for another 90 days before I want to return. And this is an issue for folks who are digital nomads.
1: It is. um, And I think it's something that governments are going to have to address because... More and more people are going to be roaming around the world without necessarily being registered in a country or paying taxes in a country or residents of a given country. So it's something that I think we'll see addressed in the upcoming decades. Um, but in the meantime, it's something that individuals need to really keep an eye on um, for themselves. So um, what I do is if I'm going to be staying in Europe, I'll just after my days are up, I'll go to another country like um, Croatia or Albania or Ukraine or somewhere that's not in in the Schengen zone, and Serbia, for example, and then you can go back in.
0: So let's get back to Bulgaria, because Bulgaria is fascinating to me. It's one of the countries I haven't been to, but very much want to go to, because it does seem in some ways that it's less touched than some of the other EU countries. And by that, I mean maybe less developed. And... Tell me about the culture there and especially what kind of food you would be eating if you were a local in Bulgaria.
1: So I am a huge proponent and cheerleader of Eastern Europe. It is a region that I have only traveled to. I started going there in 2017 and I did a road trip through the Balkan states and I was just blown away by how beautiful it was, by how safe it was, by how much history there was, and of course, by the amazing food. So um, I ended up going to Bulgaria in 2018, and I really liked it. And I was going for one month. I stayed for three months, and then I came back this year. So I was there in the summer, and then this year I was there in the winter. And it's a really nice country because it has all four seasons very distinctly represented. Um, so for foodies who are going there, you will find a completely different food at different times of the year. So summer, you'll have like two weeks where strawberries are in season, two weeks where blueberries are in season, tomatoes, like they have some of the best tomatoes in the world. Um, and then in the winter, you'll have sweet potatoes and like root vegetables and potatoes and more things like that. So it's really um, an amazing place because it has the city of the capital city of Sofia. It has beach cities on the Black Sea that are just as beautiful as beaches in Croatia or Cyprus or Greece. It's really close to Greece. So you can actually drive to Turkey or Greece. Um, and then they also have mountains. It's great for a road trip. They have a lot of old churches, a lot of history. Um, you know, it's one of the like, as I mentioned, has the oldest vineyards, So really, really good wine. And it's like a laid back country in a way with a low cost of living, but it's still quite developed. It has really fast internet, it has good infrastructure and the people don't all speak English, but it's good enough to get by. And yeah, there's just a lot to explore there. I've really only uncovered the surface and I've been to... They um, are known for their roses and rose oil. They have this valley with all of these tombs of the Thracian kings. And it's just such an underrated place. And actually, all of Eastern Europe is. I think that uh, Serbia, Albania, like all of these countries in that region have a lot to offer for a really low, low price, like a fraction of the cost of going to Western Europe.
0: These places are all on my bucket list, Kristen. Thank you for painting this picture because Bulgaria, Serbia, and Albania are all on my list. I've I've been to Croatia. We spent we spent some time in Croatia, um, not in uh, Dubrovnik or Split, but up in Istria, which mm-hmm. I'm a big advocate of. Istria, I loved it so much. Uh, I ended up setting my first novel in in Istria, but you also mentioned. Tokyo. And Tokyo was uh, is on our bucket list. Uh, we were going to go there in January. Instead, we decided at the last minute to go to New Zealand and totally worth it in New Zealand. But Tokyo is still on our list. Talk about, because it's so different, talk about the food in Tokyo and what the experience is like there.
1: Yeah. So that's one of the amazing things about how food can really represent what a culture is like. And as a traveler, to be able to appreciate each country for its uniqueness. And Japan is definitely unique. So, and I appreciate everything. Like, When I'm in the Mediterranean, I love eating Mediterranean food and Bulgarian food is a unique blend of like really fresh Mediterranean food, fruits and vegetables, and also like hearty meat and potato type of dishes that you would see in other Eastern European countries. So um, that's a very unique blend. And then you go to Japan and Tokyo and it's just like the complete opposite. I mean, they have... (laughs) In, in Bulgaria, you can buy like a kilo of blueberries for like $2. And then you go to Japan and you can go to a fruit store and you can buy the most perfect strawberry for like 90 euro. Oh, <laughs> and oh it's just the complete opposite. So Japan for me was all about like I feel like they really eat with their eyes because everything is like larger than life and everything is really colorful and everything is very available, like 24 seven, like you can get things from vending machines or from convenience stores, 24 seven, you can get full meals at least like seven 11 type of convenience stores. Um, and then I also noticed from Japan, you know, like the Japanese did they create origami, I think. they invented that. So to me, Japan is like origami is like a microcosm of how Japan is constructed. Like everything has different layers to it. And everything is like a maze sort of or like a labyrinth and down to the packaging of the food. So if you buy something, it could have like 10 different things that you have to open (laughs) to get to the actual (laughs) food. Um, So I think that they're using a lot of probably like food dyes and preservatives and like probably GMO type of stuff to get things to look the way that they do because um, so many things are a ritual and everything is about beauty there. So a lot of the food is just really extravagant and beautiful or over the top, like going to the fish market and seeing a gigantic tuna being filleted in front of your eyes. It's like you're kind of eating with your eyes before you eat with your sense of taste.
0: You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, we're in Hawaii right now, and there's a huge Japanese population in Hawaii. And I can say that presentation is everything in Japanese yeah. cuisine. And it sounds like uh, when you're in Japan, it's exactly the same. What about any other uh, Asian countries? Because I have I have zero experience in Asia, but I'm fascinated um, with going there. And what other Asian countries or cities have you been to that are especially interesting from a food standpoint?
1: So I've spent, um, I would say, the most amount of time probably in Bali, in Indonesia, in Thailand, in Hong Kong, probably the most time in Japan, and I found the food to be amazing everywhere you go like if you have a scallop it comes in like the seashell that had the scallop in it and it's just like beautiful um so everybody I recommend to go to Japan because it really can't be compared to the rest of Asia or any really the rest of the world I think it has its own unique um food culture there um that is worth seeing but as far as the rest of Asia, I, I found Hong Kong to be very dynamic. And I haven't been to mainland, mainland China, but Hong Kong is really interesting because it has a, a mix with like British culture and international, you know, relations and people from all over the world living there. But um, there's a lot of amazing food there. And also the night markets in Hong Kong have really interesting food. I also went to Macau and I got to try like those steamed buns with the pork inside that are really um, famous there. So if you ever make it to Macau, you've got to try, try those. Um, But I would say my favorite, of course, Thailand is amazing. um, And they're known for having great street food. And I would like to go to Vietnam and Cambodia and try it there. But actually, the interesting thing about Thailand is that you can find amazing food in the most unexpected places. Like I went to some really nice restaurants. I went to some really nice resorts. I went to the night markets in Chiang Mai and Bangkok, and I had some okay food. But then on a random day, I was waiting for a, I think we are going to get the bus or a taxi or something. And we were next to a mall and we just went into the mall to get a snack. And this random restaurant in like a mall in the middle of Bangkok had the best food that I ate for three weeks or no, I think I was there for a month. And so you never know like where you're going to get the best food. You can go to a restaurant and it has like a 30 page menu of Thai food and it's just like <laughs> trial and error. Um, but I, yeah, those, those would be my favorite places. And then also Bali, if you want, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the most like creative exotic food in Asia but it's just really you know what you're gonna get like it's really reliable and it tastes really good so like the nasi goreng like different noodles and rice dishes I love gado gado salad with like peanut butter sauce and there's just so many fresh salads and um, good local dishes and it's really affordable there so you can eat like a three or four or five course meal and have like tea and drinks and things like that. And it'll cost you like $10 or $12. Like you can definitely get a plate of food in Thailand or Philippines or Bali for like two to $3.
0: Those unexpected experiences are the best. I remember when we were just in New Zealand in January, we were in a town and there was a tiny Burmese population there. Um, I think the guy that we talked to said there were 15 or 20 Burmese living in this town, but they opened a restaurant. So there's a Burmese restaurant there. We went in. It was amazing. You know, sometimes you go to, you know, they've got a big expat population from whatever country. This wasn't that. It was just there happened to be a, fam- a couple of families from Burma, and they opened a restaurant, and it was spectacular.
1: I had a similar experience in Fiji, actually. So I always expected... Fiji to be just like some tropical paradise full of palm trees, but the islands, um, I think it's Levu. There's two main islands and we, there's areas that are like quite arid and they don't have beaches and they're like landlocked. And we were driving through these islands and we found really good Indian food, for example. Like we found really good roti and curries. And I didn't expect that in Fiji. And it's probably just because of some of the local families that moved there and opened a restaurant. Right, so, right. yeah. And there's actually really good hot pot, like Chinese hot pot in Costa Rica. So I lived in Costa Rica for many years and they have amazing pizza. There are so many Italians living in Costa Rica. So like really good <laughs> pizza, really good Chinese food. Um, of course, their local food is 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 good as well. Like I love their breakfast. They have um, gallo pinto, which is a rice and beans um, mixture that's cooked in a certain way with like eggs and platanos, like fried plantains and their hot sauce and stuff so there's like good comfort food but they also like you can find a really different like really good middle eastern food there and you would never think that when you envision costa rica you would just think of like bananas and (laughs) and fruit and stuff like that
0: when we were in costa rica it was the same thing Kristen. we went down there and we stumbled upon an italian restaurant and we didn't know anything about it but we were hungry for some italian food and we went there and we were like oh well at least it you know it it'll it'll fill us up we get there real italians i mean from mm-hmm. italy and we've been to italy many many times this was the authentic, the real deal. And we were just blown away. We're like, how did these Italians wind up in Costa Rica? And I tried to get the story out of them, but it really, uh, I really didn't understand it. But there is a great expat population in Costa Rica of Italians.
1: Yeah, it's, they. I mean, they call call it the Switzerland of Central America because they don't have a military, but I think it's also a reflection of the diverse population um, People from Europe who are all living in Costa Rica
0: so Kristen where's the next spot that you're headed towards
1: so my next destination that I'm really excited about is Paris so going back to one oh, yeah. of yeah favorite places I should also mention that I'm a writer so I have a new book coming out called um, digital nomad 101 the ultimate guide to location independent lifestyle and so I'll be going to Paris to a masterclass workshop that's being led by Rolf Potts, who you may have heard of, who wrote the book Vagabonding. So I'm really excited to combine uh, Parisian cuisine with with creative writing and travel.
0: Well, before we let you go, Kristen, let's let people know where they can reach you. First of all, they should watch your uh, videos on YouTube. They're very... Not only uh, informative, but they're also very entertaining. I've I've been down that rabbit hole watching your videos several times, and and they're really good. I really enjoy them. But if people want to get in touch with you, uh, where should they go?
1: Sure. So my um, my main thing right now is probably YouTube. Um, I'm on YouTube as Traveling with Kristen, and then you can also from there get to my new channel, which is called Digital Nomad TV. So traveling with Kristen. You'll find uh, travel videos and blogs and destination videos. I'm actually editing a video now about Buenos Aires, so it's kind of like it is. It's my own combination, like kind of part Anthony Bourdain, parts unknown, part Rick Steves, part like <laughs> I don't know. I'm mixing a lot of things together. but good. good. Um, and then from there, if you want more information on how to. Um, retire or transition from a traditional job to a remote job so that you can have more travel in your life and more of these experiences Then I have the other channel called Digital Nomad TV. Um, and then people can also, I own a relocation company that's called Poker Refugees that helps people move to different countries. Um, it's focused on professional online gamblers But I would say there or my Instagram, I'm super active on Instagram at traveling with Kristen and I love posting Instagram stories. So if you want to see like food that I'm eating or behind the scenes, you can uh, check out Instagram as well.
0: Kristen Wilson, digital nomad, expert on relocation. Thank you for being on Destination Eat Drink and we'll see you down the road.
1: All right. Thank you for having me.
0: I'll tell you, Kristen really makes me want to hit the road permanently. You know what I mean? Hey, if you have a question or a comment about Destination Eat Drink, you can find me on Facebook at Destination Eat Drink, on Instagram at Destination Eat Drink, on Twitter at Eat Destination, or by clicking the contact tab at DestinationEatDrink.com. I'd be happy to answer any of your questions about the show or any other episode of the podcast. We drop a new show each and every Friday, so be sure and check me out then. Destination Eat Drink has been distributed by Ed Silla of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.